good uh, good evening um good afternoon good morning uh, wherever you might be connecting in from this is the fifth of our sessions on regional perspectives on the future of small-scale farming uh, we've just come out of a very fascinating discussion on africa and yesterday we had discussions in east asia south asia and uh, latin america again really interesting perspectives i think a uh, a lot of interest in on one hand, some of the commonalities between regions, but also some, some really, really big differences. So this is a chance to have invited a representative from each of those panels yesterday to come and share some of their reflections around each of those regional panel discussions and see if we can draw out some sort of insights and lessons from across the different, the different regions. Uh, I'm Jim Woodhill. I'm the lead of the Foresight for Food initiative, uh, Ken. Uh, Mike. <laughs> ah, I did it. I'm uh, Ken Gill. I'm co-chair co of uh, SDSN's network on sustainable agriculture and food systems. We focus particularly on SDG2. Thanks. Thanks, Ken. Um, so just to remind people, if you haven't heard already, um, this is an ongoing series, webinar series. Uh, we had some sessions earlier in the year and we'll follow up these regional perspective sessions on a strategy session on the 10th of November and a final session at the end of no November looking at the bigger longer term policy implications. Uh, the, the session will be recorded and will be made available uh, offline afterwards also as a, as a podcast and we're very pleased to have uh, a number of our panellists uh, joining us this afternoon and as Ken goes to each of them, they can introduce themselves. Um, we have to admit a slightly less uh, gender balanced input this afternoon than we did have in all of the sessions. A number of our panelists weren't able to join us at the last, the last minute, but um, we will certainly be picking up some of the gender perspectives as we move through uh, the discussion this afternoon. So Ken, over to you to, uh, to moderate. Well, thanks very much indeed, Jim. So, I mean, really we've had, uh, well, this is now the, the fifth in a line of these uh, uh, these, these debates, discussions, if you like, and uh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit sort of overwhelmed myself from the number of ideas and different perspectives we've seen. You know, we talk about these as different regions, but we're really talking about continents. We talk about smallholders. We're talking about millions and millions of people across hugely diverse environments and cultures, uh, countries you name it, in, in each of these regions. And I suppose the big question is, well, what can we distill from all this? What can we really take away as, as key learnings? And what I'd like to do to start with is to pass the word around to each of our panelists and, and really ask them if there were things that came out of their, um, their session that maybe surprised them that they hadn't thought of before and, and any key reflections. So really short interventions, and then we'll move on to a number of, of questions, trying to understand a bit about what we can learn across uh, the different uh, continents about smallholders and potentially this idea of trajectories and transformation. So I'd like to start with, we'll start with East Asia, which is where we began. So over to you, Graham, if you could introduce yourself and maybe just mm. make a few <laughs> opening comments. Yeah. So my name is Graham Dixie. I'm the executive director of an organization called Grow Asia, which is um, a cross-regional multi-stakeholder partnership 
bringing together 500 partners from the private sector, the, pri the public sector, the producers. They form working groups. They work on projects. There's about 50 of them out there. And then there's some regional programs. And, and it's essentially that you often find countries who do better than you expect in agriculture have some kind of forum that that dialogue between those different sectors can happen. Um, so that, that's essentially what we do. You ask Ken, well, what was my surprise? One of the one of the surprises was your comment in the summer at the end, which was um, how confident and dynamic and optimistic East Asia sounded. Yeah. Um, and it and that was interesting to me to, to hear that contrast with other regions. Um, essentially, you know, there there is there is a lot going on in our region and there's a lot of excitement. But I think you know, coming away from it, the group which which comprised two people from farmer associations, a very senior um, person from the government of Vietnam, um, IFAD, and, and two people who work in these multi-stakeholder partnerships. I think that there was a consensus. And the consensus was that really you can't, you, it's not a, um, a homogeneous sector, smallholder farmers, and that you needed to tackle it in, in two different ways. The first one was that there was, a, a, evident concern about the really small scale farmer, the subsistence farmer, the landless, the indigenous, and that there was a particular need for policies to support them because of the innate difficulties they had, whether it was because of their age, was it because of where they were located, or, or, or um, they just didn't have the capacity to go into the commercial sector. Then there was the, the next side, which was the sort of optimistic side that came out. Um, the fact is that the grocery food spend is going up at about six and a half percent per year. Effectively, this means that the amount of money that is being spent on food will double in a decade. <clears throat> and that's really good news because that means that we at least have the potential for a very significant increase in cash into the rural economy. Uh, and you know, if we get down to the real crude basis of it, you know, the raw material which will change rural poverty is a, a, a basic element that we need a great deal more cash to go in there. And the, the, the food sector, the agribusiness sector is one of the ways that that can come. The other one that was quite interesting, and I was quite surprised that normally there is this sort of um, very um, pessimistic view about the future of agriculture and will we have any farmers left in 20 years time? They will all have died or retired and everyone's leaving farming. Actually, IFAD presented some quite interesting data that the young people were still around and were working in there. And certainly where you get a lot of anecdotal information that there are younger farmers who want to stay there and they want to become better farmers. And so that the picture that was emerging, and it was quite a strong consensus, was that we wanted to encourage the emergence of a cadre of younger, better, more professional farmers. And that was needed. And that was needed because the, the, the consumers in our region are increasingly fussy, they're increasingly going for animal proteins, processed products, fruit and vegetables, staple food level consumptions are going down. And, and they're, they're very concerned about taste. It's their number one criteria, yeah, yeah. but also um, on, on things like food safety and so on and so forth. So you need a more professional farming sector. And so, and if you then say, well, how are you gonna keep young farmers farming? They have to make a sensible living for them and their lives and their, their, their families. The second thing, interestingly, is the one that they need services. You know, they, they do want schools and hospitals that work and education for their children and an Internet which they can download Netflix. Those are the sort of things that you need. 
And we also are starting to see the beginnings of the emergence of, of around farming a net a service sector. Yeah. People that fly the drone. People that organize um, Lego gangs to come in and harvest your, your mangoes. So you, we, we, we had this mental picture that amongst those people who had access to markets, and you could improve that, that there was, provided they were competitive and met the market servicing requirements, there was a strong potential for delivering a significant yeah. in the rural space. And it might not be creating lots more jobs on farms, but it would be creating lots more jobs into the whole of the supply yeah, chain. Exactly. And then was the yeah. discussion around what that might, how that might be done. And, and there were certainly talks about infrastructure, the importance of roads, networks, linking opportunities um, to expanding markets. Um, there was the, um, the, the credit issues. There was certainly a lot of discussion around land and, and the ability. So in China, for example, a lot of the emergence of these bigger scale farmers because sure. they have access to leased sure. land and whether that can emerge. Ken, I think that's probably enough at the it, moment and we can it's come fantastic. back. I, I think, and, and there were some key points you brought up there around that didn't really come out elsewhere so much around the, the food safety issues um, and but I think maybe some of the things that you were saying there, I do recognize also from the South Asia discussion. Uh -huh. and I'd like to uh, introduce uh, uh, Mamata uh, and allow you if you'd like to, uh, to make some, to introduce yourself and then to make some, some comments, so please. Yeah, so uh, I'm Mamta and I'm working as a research collaborator with International Food Policy Research Institute. So I'm a researcher in development and my particular interest has always been social protection programs. Yeah. Uh, uh, so um, we had a lot of discussion, uh, you know, on the future of uh, small scale farmers. And um, I think it was a very rich discussion. So in the context of India, I think everybody is a small scale farmer, like you have 86%, you know, less than two he hectares of land. Uh, so whatever the definition of small-scale farmers that you give, it's only going to get smaller and smaller. So we did talk about fragmentation, that uh, land is not going to expand, you know, so it's only going to get contracts. So that will be the dependency on land is going to be there. Uh, what I found really nice was that there was a general consensus that, you know, small scale farmers are the integral part of the food system. So they are here to stay so we cannot wish them away. So uh, we did explore uh, then uh, what are the solutions or what are the different perspectives in terms of, you know, tapping their uh, potential. Uh, and we did also talk about how to get the markets right. We also talked about the policy, how to get the policy right. We also touched upon very specific components in terms of of gender, uh, water availability, and then we also talked about the options of safety net programs, which is kind of a, a risk mitigation strategy for small scale farmers. I mean, there was a discussion around like, you, of course you cannot substitute, I, I mean, always income with the safety net programs, but then we have to accept that India is a low income country and we are almost yeah. like what yeah. 122nd rank in the per capita income. So in this context, uh, you know, so we uh, we need it. So as long as we need it and, and we need it for the small scale farmers. Uh, there was a point about or that Professor Jivika from uh, Sri Lanka, she talked about uh, home gardens. Uh, in fact, Sri Lankan government has uh, gone a big way in uh, uh, the home gardens. And I think uh, uh, there is a 
also a large contingency group which really talks about it as a, a solution. Uh, but uh, my, it's my personal view that you know it has issues around scale up, and uh, you know, and uh, you cannot just target it to a specific region and uh, a specific segment because. Um, when you think about small scale farmers, you have to think big because you know there are so many of them in India. So, uh, so, uh, so you have to bring about uh, big changes in the macro policies, and you have to apply a very wholesome level of uh, changes. And that's what I was, uh, you know, emphasizing yesterday that we need to have the markets right. Um, mm. And uh, then there was another discussion around when it is uh, in related to market is in the context of the food safety that Graham really brought up. So there was discussion around how food safety is always uh, thought of as a constraint for small scale farmers because it is costly, right? Uh, um, and there was discussion around how food safety is very context specific. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it's again my uh, personal view. So when you talk about, you know, uh, food safety and making it a source of, uh, you know, value creation, uh, you need uniformity. You know, you you yeah, cannot yeah, yeah. have, uh, sure. uh, you know, a small component of mango which will have carbide and the other comp component will not have carbide. So, you know, so you need that kind of uh, uh, uniformity and uh, to bring that uniformity, you need a very uh, credible system. So, and uh, that credible system for small scale farmers is what will work. You know, uh, and what is that credible system? You have to have, you know, the back end right in terms of storage, grading, certification, quality. So all that is needed. And for that, uh, uh, to assess it, uh, it, it has to be very objectively assessed. You cannot be very subjectively assessed in terms of uh, the food safety standards. So um, there was uh, another very important point which was not discussed. And I thought I should put it uh, up front here is that India does not have a gap. That is India gap. That is good agriculture practices. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, sure. is, like Thailand yeah. has, uh, yeah, Thailand has Thai gap, and you know, Kenya has Kenya gap. Um, so, and it is very important when we are talking about to get the markets right. So, you know, sure. when people okay. want quality, when people want, uh, you know, um, uh, how safe uh, this product is, and even that boils down to that willingness to pay. So, you know, so you yeah. need to have uh, that kind of uh, good uh, agriculture practices. So uh, I think uh, 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 there was also a, a, a lot of discussion uh, around, you know, how, how do you really create uh, market opportunities for small scale farmers? So that's when yeah. I do emphasize that you have to, the government has to step in and he has to have the back end right. Sure. Uh, yeah. uh, we uh, just a bit of a point where I uh, found about about the discussion about the institutional solution and people talked about farmer producer organizations, uh, you know, uh, then how it's a collective action and it is uh, kind of uh, really addresses the economies of scale. But uh, I always find that, uh, you know, uh, for FPOs and which is small scale farmers uh, uh, to really uh, take advantage of it, we have to make it very farmer, a small scale farmer enabled in times of getting the incentives right. So you have to have the, uh, you know, the size of, of the FPOs matter in terms of what comparative advantage do they bring on the table. So these are some of the few points I will huh. stop and then I think I'll come back to more. <laughs> there are a lot actually. But, well, <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, you, you do. <laughs> Like Graham, I mean, you raise a huge number of issues already. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are a couple of things you'd like to ask, add on this. And I always, when yeah, I. There's one of the two sets of points, I has already covered most of them. 
One is the continuity or overlaps between um, farm sector and non-farm sector. So this was discussed under yeah. how are smallholders coping and the Bitcoin was a big coping mechanism has been going out to non-farm jobs wherever possible. And one of the reasons why I think everyone agreed that the smallholders are here to stay in South Asia, partly because of regulatory restrictions, et cetera, on land uh, sealing, uh, but also because whenever uh, the farmers, smallholders have tried to diversify and go into urban areas or into other occupations, those occupations have a lot of precariousness. Right? They, uh, so as a result, they would like to uh, keep their lands with them, even if their women are cultivating Sorry. it or left behind to manage yeah. it as an insurance. So that's the precariousness of it. And it's also in this relationship, it was repeatedly uh, mentioned that actually farm and non-farm are now part of a portfolio of uh, livelihood opportunities that the smallholders are using in this region. And they use a mix of it and that varies depending on multiple variables. One is gender, women have less opportunity for non-farm occupation. The other is whether you have irrigated areas or not, your land is irrigated or how your soil is. Third is where you are located. If you're in peri-urban areas versus deeper areas where market is further away, et cetera. So that, that I think needs a better understanding. That was one. Yeah. The second point that was raised was uh, regarding climate change. So Aditi, who is on IPCC, yeah. she mentioned that they are doing uh, this massive review of meta review, and they found that there are four major strategies that people have done research on for where farmers try to uh, climate change and other risks. And those four, in the order of importance or frequency of papers, are change in cropping pattern, improved cultivars, irrigation and water management, and uh, other is the in-situ water management, like soil water conservation, et cetera. And the point that she highlighted is all these four are incremental adaptation strategies. None of them are transformational given the trajectory of climate change and warming that we are on. These are not enough even for the 1.5 degree increase temperature world. We are on a trajectory of two and two plus uh, probably. So you need yeah. more, you need uh, other things, which might include uh, social safety net programs and non-ag sector subsidizing farmers, or other types of uh, interventions. What they are, we didn't disc quite discuss that. The last point was, actually Mamta uh, alluded to it, is uh, we talk a lot about access to markets, but I think we need to go beyond that and discuss the terms of access and what influences that terms. One of the things is that uh, smallholders have had asymmetric access and some of the uh, off-the-shelf type solution or standard solutions that are offered are not quite the solutions. One of them would be cooperatives or farmer producer organizations. They work in certain contexts, they don't work in others. So it might yeah. be a better idea to enrich the local markets, build better uh, infrastructure, build better linkages and have more denser, what someone called real markets in there. Uh, FPU is not taking it off the table, but be careful that they cannot solve problems everywhere for all I think those were some of the points. I'm sure I missed many others, but yeah. Brilliant, Avinash. And I want to come back to you later because I learned this term from you about the ultra small, small scale farming. And, and I think that's one that always will stay in my mind that I, I learned from you. I'd like to switch then across to Latin America. So Heitor, if you could unmute and, and uh, give us your thoughts. And maybe if, if you already have a reflection on what you've heard, I mean, first of all, your 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 thoughts from the the discussion yesterday, what you learned and what you discussed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Ken, uh, and thank you for the opportunity of being here. My name is Eitur, and uh, I am a researcher at Varginha University, but I'm originally from Brazil, and I have been working more than ten years with smallholder farmers in Brazil. Uh, 
And I'm, I was very happy with the discussion yesterday and I felt we were um, from different countries and with complementary uh, views, but also quite aligned uh, with each other. So I was, I was happy to see that, that we have this alignment uh, within different countries in Latin America. And I would like to raise uh, some remarks. Uh, I, will be, I will try to be brief and uh, to be general, and then we can go a bit deeper later. So one of the things that we discussed is the importance of having clear definitions of smallholder farmers. And that is important, uh, for instance, to develop adequate policies for this sector, for this group. And in Brazil, for instance, and I think we have a, we have a law that defines family farmers and smallholder farmers, and they don't mean the same thing. And we also discussed that this in Brazil is, is very consolidated, but in other countries, in Latin America, not so much. And it's important to, to have this consolidated. Um, and also to acknowledge, of course, that although we have definitions for this large group, uh, it's also a very diverse group and we have a great diversity of family farmers. And we also have tools and, and means to assess this diversity and acknowledge that when we design uh, strategies to, to improve the livelihood of rural people. And the second point I would like to, to highlight is that although we, we also discussed that although family farmers have been uh, largely disregarded and in history, so with lack of access to credits, policies, the education systems were not, was not preparing people well enough to deal with smallholder farmers and so on. Uh, despite that, uh, we recognize that, that family farmers in Latin America, they play a key role, not only for food production, and we have a lot of scientific evidence and data showing that, uh, not only for food production, but also for biodiversity conservation and for the provision of multiple ecosystem services. What we, like we, we call ecosystem services, the benefits derived from nature to people, and that can be pollination, pest control, water regulation, soil quality, produ uh, production of food for self-consumption and so on. And this is very important, uh, mainly because of two things. First, because it help, it uh, forces us or it, yeah, it requires us to have a systemic view on farming systems, not only focused on increasing yields, but focusing on balancing and, and creating synergies among these multiple ecosystem services that are beneficial for farmers and for society. And second, it's important to recognize these services because then we can develop policies that incentivate and, and value farmers for providing such services, for instance, through payment for ecosystem services. So these are things that we discussed. We also discussed uh, the importance of social organizations, including farmers organizations, to give voice to farmers, to make sure that their rights are, are, are assured and also uh, to create uh, a cooperation and, and, uh, and to create a network of farmers with other uh, social actors, such as technicians and researchers and policymakers. And that's very important to develop more bottom-up uh, policies. And, in, and we have several examples of policies that were quite successful on, on, on supporting family farmers. And I can talk more about examples later. And finally, to finalize, can I, or? Go on, finally, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, then the, the, the last thing is the role of women and, and youth. 
we we discussed a lot about this, and and we also discussed that a lot about uh, specifically about youth, and saying that we need to change this pejorative view on family farming. We need to to create educa uh, education and to create uh, yeah knowledge systems that value uh, their lifestyle and as well give them conditions to have a good uh, life in the rural area, for instance, yeah, having sure. access to internet and so on, as was already said by Gra Graham. Um, and yeah, I think for now, that's it. Okay. Thank you. But it really did strike me the big difference when we were talking about Latin America in terms of the size. So, I mean, many of your very small farms are what, five to 10 hectares? in different places and, and I mean that's not true everywhere I think Nicaragua will be will be an exception but and, and when you're talking very much about this idea of ecosystem services which is really and, and the broader idea of them being the sort of custodians of the land which is a very different view uh, I think than we had from the other regions so I thought that was a great contrast I'd like to move on then to Martin Michero from I think you're in Kenya is that correct um, <clears throat> good afternoon. Well, uh, it's afternoon for me from this end. I'm in Botswana. Oh, I'm Botswana, based, uh, yes, in Gaborone, yes. Um, <laughs> not a problem. Um, yeah, uh, we, we've just uh, had an hour ago, um, uh, our session on the African continent. And um, some of the critical things or, or um, I mean, what struck me most that came out, uh, although it wasn't quite a surprise, but um, a, a different way of looking at it, was the issue of, I think one of our colleagues characterized it as the re-characterization of uh, smallholders. Uh, I think this kind of links to what Hector, uh, Hector, Hector has just mentioned uh, in terms of the definition of a smallholder farmer. Um, I think what uh, the uh, contributor was uh, referring to was that we need to redefine what a smallholder farmer is, not by the fact of the size of the land, but by other social dimensions of, of, of nature. So that was a very critical thing that has come up because I think we've always just talked about, and therefore our policies have been linked to the size of the land uh, or addressing the size of the land without addressing some of these issues such as the social dimensions. So I thought that was very, very critical. This brings in obviously the issues of youth, women, gender, and so on and so forth. Another um, uh, quite important element that came out, I mean, obviously this also was not too much of a surprise, was a general agreement that smallholder farming is going to continue for quite a while um, in, in the context of Africa. And therefore, we need to engage and, and, and see how uh, that can be supported um, from a uh, food security, uh, poverty reduction uh, perspective. That sort of brought in uh, the last point I just wanted to make to mention very quickly. Brought in the whole aspect of it, how holistically we should be dealing with um, issues of supporting access to markets, uh, supporting um, wealth creation by smallholder farmers, however we define them. <clears throat> was this whole aspect of rural development? Um, rural development in its broadest context, obviously bringing in the context or the concepts of agriculture development, which unfortunately we've tended to concentrate more on and ignore the other aspects of rural development, which include uh, robust non-farm type activities, uh, non-farm type uh, enterprises, 
I mean, there's a, there's a lot of need to develop that robustness um, to support the smallholder farmers. Um, the social aspects, obviously, uh, of the social infrastructure development um, and all that comes with uh, rural development. So those elements um, came out as fairly strong elements that needed to be uh, considered on the, uh, on the African continent um, with regards to um, smallholder uh, farming. So, um, yeah, let me, let me leave it at that point, um, because I think uh, in association with the size of land and so on was the fact that in some countries, uh, Ethiopia, I think, has given us uh, or has good examples where even on less than a, a hectare of land, uh, smallholder farmers have been able to produce in excess of seven tons um, of um, uh, seven tons per hectare of maize, five, six, seven tons of hectare, uh, uh, tons of maize um, per hectare. So it's not a question of the land size, but it's what support uh, comes together um, um, for the smallholder farmer. So let me leave it at that point. Brilliant. So I mean, I think across the regions we can we can accept this this uh, mantra if you like okay smallholders are here to stay but i think we do see some very different dynamic and um maybe starting back with graham i mean obviously i think this is maybe china as being the particular example but we do see this different ways that land is being consolidated so not necessarily um one farmer um, taking over everybody else's land, but different forms of rental and land exchange, which are allowing farms to become, if you like, more um, viable units in terms of their size. And um, we had a little discussion about that in, in, in South Asia, but, but they're very much more the idea there that because of the rates of population growth and, and rural population growth, that that's really not happening in the same. So I don't know if we could reflect on that because it strikes me this isn't happening in Africa, for instance. So, I mean, I'd like to talk a bit about this idea about dynamics of, of farms and farm changes, first of all, in, in structures. Yeah, I mean, and certainly what uh, the, you know, the stories emerging out of, out of China is, is that you, you're definitely seeing parties of younger farmers farming larger areas being more professional. They're not necessarily buying the land. <laughs> They're definitely leasing it, and in a similar way, I'm, I'm told that you know in Germany, similarly, that you will find that there is a large farmer, but he's not necessarily all of that land is his own. It's often known by village members who've kept it, and so on. And and then you know we have this story emerging out of Africa, which I think is fascinating: the the emergence of the medium scale farm. Um, and I think uh, and it's particularly strong in the countries which have less. Uh, have lower population density. So it, it's, you know, it's the Zambias, it's the Ghanas of the world, and it's Tanzania, but not so much Kenya. But the inst interesting thing about that is that those people, 75% um, of them are, are stepping in. These are people from the urban environment buying land. 25% is farm, small-scale farmers that have increased their, their surface area and become more professional. But it, it has positive spin-offs. There's often um, what... And as often what's described as the is, is um, you know, that yields go down as, as area goes up. In fact, what they're showing is it does it sort of U-shaped. So on a very, very small bit of land, you do get a very high yield. Then there's a sort of lack of professionalism. And then as the professional increases, the yield goes up. So that they've seen there's been a, a carryover effect um, to the small scale farmers surrounding that. 
The question I had for South Asia is that, you know, I know that they say that the farm size is getting smaller, but isn't there an example? I mean, isn't there a, a number of examples where a family is farming together as a bigger farm or someone is um, so that he's using patches from his aunt and his uncle who's not there to create a bigger farm area, but it may look like it's 10 different farms, but actually it's one. Over. Well, Mamata, there's an invitation, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a situation is a bit different for India, you know, um, I mean, uh, a fragmentation because of the, you know, rising population, we are highly populated, Samely uh, applies for Pakistan and Bangladesh also. So uh, this uh, fragmentation of land holding is a reality. I mean, we just can't get away with that. Uh, because, uh, you know, there is historical evidence also to show that there is a fragmentation, it will also uh, continue to do so. So, uh, and then I agree with uh, Martin, you know, when he talked about that land is not just an input to define a, a you know, a small scale farmer, because there are other uh, social dimensions and income on which basis you can, uh, I mean, how you categorize small scale farmers also depends. Uh, I mean, I could be a small scale farmers, but uh, my market linkages would be good, you know, I, I, I maybe I'm exploiting the market. Uh, market. So, uh, so on that context, I do agree that how do you categorize, but in the global context and context of India, uh, I think everybody is a small scale farmer. I mean, it's like less than two hectares of land. And what are we talking about? I mean, even if you're considering the marginal farmers or large scale farmers, it's five to 10 hectares. So, um, the, uh, the land is only going to get smaller and smaller. So, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, there's no two way about that because uh, we have limited industrialization, you know. And so, I mean, unless and until there is, uh, you know, the manufacturing and the industrialization really uh, picks up, uh, there will be a dependence on uh, land and uh, agriculture is going to be an essential uh, part of it. Uh, so, and that's why, why we kind of, I mean, uh, Avinash also emphasized, uh, you know, that why it is always uh, necessary to really, really open up on non-farm sectors, you know, they are, they are, uh, I mean, unless you really uh, kind of uh, invest in non-farm, uh, uh, how are we going to even uh, make the small scale farmers uh, produce uh, optimal on what they are uh, good at. And on the uh, part of, uh, you know, uh, small scale farmers do not get into big production cycles. So, you know, so they, they, they have this small land. So what they go for is very um, high value agriculture products like fruits and vegetables that was I've talked about. And because, uh, you know, they're large families, there's always a constant need of high frequency of, uh, you know, cash flow. So they will get into, uh, they choose to get into all this high value agriculture products. So uh, that, that, that's the potential. So it's there. So only thing is that we have to make a distinction between what is potential and how to tap the potential. So the potential is that one is that they have all favorable conditions to really go for high value products and vis-a-vis -vis not why, uh, you know, rice and wheat, uh, though there's a, uh, another discussion around why they don't go to rice and wheat, despite the fact that it's an MSP and an assured market, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, 
And the number two is that we have to also take cognizance on the demand side. You know, the consumer preference is also changing. They're moving away from cereals and pulses, especially mm -hmm. in India. Uh, you know, there is a more uh, uh, preference for uh, like fruits and vegetables, livestock and milk and dairy. So there is sure. a demand side to it also, right? And then we have the small scale farmers who have this less than two hectares of land who want to go into this high value agriculture products in because of the constraints or good or bad uh, so uh, so and that's that's their need so yeah yeah I, I mean i think the the point that avinash made that I'd, I'd like to refer it back to martin because i mean i think the point you just made earlier avinash and that mamata just uh, reinforced really is this one of the dependence of, of um, on-farm and off-farm income and how they complement each other or, or you know, the, at times there's more dependence on the farm, there's more dependence on the job in the city. And, and Martin, I think we're often reflecting, is, is one of the big problems in Africa simply not the lack of other jobs, the lack of other employment, which allow actually farmers to actually have this diversification? Um, yeah, thank you. I mean, if I understood you correctly, yes, um, the lack, and this is why um, there's quite a bit of discussion and linkage to uh, rural development um, uh, in the sense that, um, yes, one agrees there's the rural-urban uh, continuum. Um, there's a lot at the moment of uh, remittances, mainly from the urban to the rural areas to support uh, the rural community, which is where uh, between 60 and 80 percent of uh, the population resides um, uh, in, and they are basically all smallholder farmers. Um, so, so the uh, and, and and what is what has become uh, more apparent as a result of the COVID uh, situation that we are in, and uh, the restrictions to movement, the restrictions to uh, transport, and obviously the restrictions that have happened uh, in terms of marketing. Um, has shown the need for um, um, industrialization in the form of rural development, moving to the rural sector, developing the rural sector to be um, uh, 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 or, or, or bringing uh, um, industrialization, industrial, industrialization uh, into the rural setting. Um, it's a, I mean, this is an old age story, um, basically, when, when we talk about um, uh, industrialization, but it, it's, it's become very uh, 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 important in that um, we need to move away from uh, raw material production and disposal to adding value as close as possible to the source. Um, and obviously, I mean, discussions are around, I mean, not everyone can do it, but, um, but there needs to be consolidation, there needs to be um, incentives, government incentives, policy direction that uh, changes, um, uh, at the moment it favours the urban areas, uh, so sure. um, policy well, has to change and move towards um, yeah. rural development as it were, yeah. And I think that links to the point that Graham made earlier, that if more money is flowing into the rural areas, then you have this proliferation of services and the other parts of the economy can take off. Peter, maybe we could, I, I want to make sure we keep Latin America involved here. 
do you think that there are things that, that we could, I mean, obviously the contexts are really very different in terms, particularly of population densities and everything we're talking about in, in Asia and Africa. But are there specific things that you think we should be putting on the table in terms of this debate that you would, would come from your discussion and in, in your experience, in fact, of working with different sectors in, in Brazil and in South America? Yeah, uh, on this point uh, raised by Martin uh, on how to to incentivize the yeah the uh, the beneficiation of, of products. Uh, for instance, I think we have good examples of agro industries, uh, and this has been uh, quite uh, good for farmers because they can add value to their products, and uh, and this was only possible because of strong social organizations like unions and cooperatives where farmers can get together and organize themselves to create an agro industry, for instance. So this, I think it's a, it's a valid point and I don't know if it could work uh, also in other continents. And also the thing of direct markets, uh, this is also something that add, values, uh, add value for farmers because they can sell their products for a fair price uh, in, in fair markets or in small shops that they build themselves and so on. And finally, also, I come back again to policies because for instance, we have the PNI and PAI, I mentioned this in the session, and these have been extremely relevant for farmers to help them to find a good market for a diversity of products. And for instance, the PNI, the, it obligates uh, all secondary and fundamental schools to buy at least 30% of the food they provide to kids from family farmers. And then that's great because then farmers can produce many different things and create a complex sure. system and then sell these products for a fair price. And then kids, instead of eating yeah. sausages or processed and industrialized products, they are eating healthy food from local farmers. So but it's, a nice, it's a nice example, I think, where you're, you're designing um, a policy to actually pr provide, and we, we this came out of some of the other discussions, a, a sort of not just a market, but a real market, a market which re really smallholders can engage with. Because I think otherwise we're, we're back to this, uh, you know, we just need to, and, and of course we need them, we need to build roads, we need to provide, you know, infrastructure, we need to provide markets, but it, it, it needs to be much more tailored than that. I, I'd like I've really got an eye on the time. I'd really like to, to spend a little time talking about this whole area, though, of, of social protection. There was a comment in, in one of the chats I see here from Amsalu, that must be from Ethiopia indeed, where he's talking about, well, you know, how small are we talking about? And when we're talking about uh, a family having to survive on less than a hectare or often half a hectare or maybe 0.2 hectares, <laughs> as we see in some places, well, we know that that's, that's simply not possible. So maybe we could bring in Avinash and Mamata because you've got experience in this area. What sort of, could you maybe just tell us, first of all, the sort of social protection systems there, there are in, in India, particularly at the moment, and maybe what could we learn from those for potentially the, the African situation where really this type of social protection barely exists? I mean, there are some examples, but... Very little. Avinash, maybe? Sure. Uh, so one thing is that when we are talking about a small holding, we are talking much smaller than what you just uh, listed or rattled off, Ken. 40%, the two states that where Mamata, I, and even Jim to some extent work, 
Bihar and West Bengal, and Bangladesh, Nepal, that I would be similar. 40% of uh, landowners have less than 0 0.05 hectares. That's so that's one eighth of a hectare, yeah, 0 0.05. That's 40%. And this is already yes. five years old data. So we're talking about really stamp size holdings. In, and this is 40%. This is the 40th percent cutoff. If you look at, let's say, bottom 20%, it's like really, really small. So that's one. Second is the one usual strategy that farmers themselves are doing is, even within agriculture, is uh, adding livestock to it. And in Bangladesh, to some extent, fisheries uh, to it, converting some of the rice paddy. Not everyone is doing it, but livestock is almost universal or very, very common. Without it, these farms will not be viable. And these livestocks are integrated with what happens on land. So a lot of crop residue is used as dry fodder and, and so on and so forth. And uh, female labor, which doesn't have opportunity cost outside of family contribution. There. So that's one. Second is, um, like I talked, livelihood diversification. Uh, which is uh, happening everywhere in the region, uh, including livestock, but also other uh, village within village or outside of village. Uh, on the public support system, there are, there are a whole range. Uh, uh, one that India started recently, a very large program is giving about $80, $70, $75 a year to each landholder, irrespective of his or her holding size. So you have 100 hectares, you get the same amount as you get if you have 0.1 hectare. Uh, it's the largest agriculture program now in India, larger than any other subsidy, uh, including fertilizer subsidy. So that's one. A second one is having a lot of price subsidies on inputs. So fertilizer urea sells in India at one third of its world price. There's some subsidy on phosphate and potash. In many states, you get electricity to irrigate and that is free uh, or, or very low price. If you have canal irrigation, there is a fee for it. Not, uh, not a charge, like as such, you pay a tax sort of irrigation tax and not quite a charge. So those inputs. And for rice and wheat growers, you guarantee, uh, not for everyone, but almost one third to 40% of all rice and wheat grown in India is purchased by government at a fixed price. So reducing the yeah. risk. Apart from that, uh, within ag systems, you have uh, almost free crop insurance. Again, it's not effective, but uh, the, the subsidy is, uh, is there. And then there are other ones like you have from your, for your household needs. So if you're using a liquefied petroleum gas cylinder, there, that is uh, subsidized in India up to a certain number for cooking. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, if you are also willing to do physical sure. labor, so there is a workfare program where you get a minimum wage if you work sure. to do physical labor. So there's a whole range, but doesn't come even cover even 20% of average household income. And rice and wheat are also sold very cheap to the poorest household at two rupees and three rupees. So exactly. at 10% yeah. of their cost of production, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it, it's such a large packet. And I mean, I think we've, we've particularly, I think Afri Africa has suffered very much from structural adjustment. I mean, the, the whole idea that the state cannot intervene. And yet we look at, at India and you've got this massive state intervention at different levels. And I know you can be critical of, of some of them, but, but at least, if you like, that they are providing this basis, this basis from which then a household could you know, diversify their tiny farm in, to produce nutritious food, for instance. Yeah? So, so Martin, how are we going to maybe change the way we think about some of these policies with African governments? Because it, it strikes me that in Africa, we haven't really engaged very much with this idea of, of what can the state do for the, the very poor, if you like, for these ultra small farms, or, or maybe in the African context, they're not ultra small, but, but very small. 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, um, uh, I have. I have. Uh, yeah, um, a number of thoughts on this. But uh, it, the first major one comes back to the point that has just been raised now uh, that you've summarised is uh, uh, the effect of structural adjustments in um, in 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 Africa. Um, I happen to have been. I was the chief executive officer of the Grain Marketing Board in Zimbabwe um, back in the in in the early nineteen eighties when it effectively uh, worked. As a, as a tool to support um, uh, um, the marketing of, of, of products from the farmers um, and, and to the farmers in terms of inputs. Um, with structural adjustment, all of that was privatized. All of it is gone. So talk about access to markets. A farmer who is, who is working on a half a hectare will never be able to accumulate sufficient for a truckload to go into um, uh, or to travel 50, 60 kilometers to the next nearest uh, marketing point. Whereas the old system of cooperatives, old system of uh, unions, old system of um, control, well, we, we, we called it control, but maybe the word is not, is not the correct word, um, uh, or marketing of, of agricultural products is one of the most effective. In fact, um, just a, a run back into history, um, uh, for some of you who may not be aware, this is how countries like Rhodesia, for instance, then, which is now Zimbabwe, how countries like South Africa literally grew to where they, well, okay, Zimbabwe is now grown back to um, the, dark, uh, the dark ages. But at some point it grew up to being a huge um, uh, economy uh, within the Southern African region. It was purely because of um, uh, uh, government policies that were targeted at the farming community. Zimbabwe, when you look at the soil and everything, it's not one of the best countries uh, in terms of soil fertility, sure. but because of the policies, it became almost the sub-regional uh, uh, grain basket Absolutely. of the region. Yeah. yeah. So policies yeah. play a significant role here. Yeah. Martin, we could talk about this a lot. I was I was Indeed. professor of soil science at UZ for a while, and, uh, and oh. uh, yeah, I mean Zimbabwe, I, I regard as a, a bit of a second home. Guys, we're talking about all of this in the context of the challenges that we have for the transformation of small-scale agriculture. You know that. Uh, achieving SDG 1 and 2, solving poverty, solving hunger. What, what can we see as being real opportunities for transformative change? And, I, and again, um, I'll come to you, Graham. I mean, Avinash made this point that when we're talking about adaptations often to climate change, they're often these small incremental steps. And when we think about, about transformation, I, I think in my mind it, that has to involve structural change in terms of farm structures and, and maybe changes in, in economies as well. But what would we see as being those real opportunities? Graham, you had your hand up. And, oh, okay, and yes, I will. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, first of all, that there is, you know, all of the countries you've been talking about a different stage of agricultural transformation. And when we've mapped this out over time, not only does the population drop who are working on farms, but there is this sort of thing that agriculture uh, as a um, GDP drops. It doesn't. What happens is the rest of the economy grows. And it's a big driver of what the change that's gone in agriculture, what happens in the rest of the economy. So I just leave that as a thought. But I also wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, kind of putting our headlights into the future, you know, because we, we, we don't want to walk into the future looking backwards. 
and and coming out of COVID, we're seeing some very interesting things. Um, you know, one one of the one of the key issues that came was the difficulties of first. So this is, I'm, I'm now going to talk, let's get outside the farm and think about the bigger story. Um, when we looked at COVID, we saw that one of the big problems was the weakest link in the supply chain was the first mile connectivity between the farmer and the market. And, the, and there, you know, we see fantastic changes that have happened in digital technologies to be able to make much more effective use of, of logistics within the urban environment. Surely, you know, Grab and some of these other applications could be applied so that local people can, can consolidate loads, bring, make a, a collection point, put it out to bid to local truckers and backhauls. We're seeing that being very interesting. The second thing was mobile money um, uh, and how money was not flowing around, but, and farmers don't, but the economy is becoming less cash. And unless we can get farmers into a less cash economy, they're likely to get marginalized. And we've, we were amazed to discover in, in Cambodia, wing money has a bigger market penetration than M-Pesa in Kenya. And, yeah. and what they were doing in terms of being able to convert digital signals so that farmer could get paid digitally and he goes to a local agent, turns it into cash. And then, and what that opens out is something else, which is that what COVID has done has shot up the amount of purchases that are going on the digital platforms. Um, Pino Dio Dio in, in China does $20 billion worth of direct sales from farmers to consumers. And the, the ingredients in that, you need to have strong local infrastructure, you need to have a Wi-Fi that exists, you need to have e-wallets and, and um, mobile money to make that work. So, you, you know, when you start putting those things together, because the, the first mile logistics is often the most expensive, we've seen in, in Indonesia, that those truckers are charging 300% margin because there's lack of competition. So you put in a digital um, application to be able to consolidate loads. You have mobile money, which will enable farmers to be participate in these digital platforms, which are becoming more and more important. And the agribusinesses like them because it is a way that they don't have to carry cash out to the economy and carry COVID out into the economy, oh, but it's a way that they can pay those things. Over. But, but there were two points that you made there that I think are really key. And the first one was, was <clears throat> the dependence on agriculture for the GDP and, and the size of the other economy. And the fact that then, that, 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 that basically you're talking about a situation where that, that, that transformation has happened, if you like, where there is sufficient money in the economy as well to flow around. And, and I mean, do we think now, we talk very much about, you know, Africa was, was sparsely populated. Of course, that's changing very rapidly. I mean, is this population growth going to be what we call this double-edged sword? It, it, it's gonna be a huge pressure on land, but at the same time, it's got the potential to allow the economy to grow simply because of the number of people. Do people have any comments on that? How can we look really optimistically about the, these demographic changes that we're, we're seeing happening in Africa? Sorry. Anybody? Mamata? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, when I um, 
you know, uh, talked about uh, the population and how it's a, it's a, how do we look at it in terms of uh, making it profitable, you know? <laughs> so uh, I always quote this uh, from, uh, this is a very good management book by C.K. Pralat with uh, Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, you know, and he where he talks about a um, lot of innovations done to target that uh, poorest of the poor, how the private sectors have really taken advantage of it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, addressing this uh, this segment, how they have customized. And if you look at all those in India, if you come and if you look at the small pouches of shampoos, you know, uh, and, you know, food items. So uh, it's elementary, uh, element, uh, elementing uh, poverty uh, through profit, you know. So I think for uh, small scale farmers, it's a reality. Of course, there is a rise in population. This, uh, you know, uh, the land is only going to be divided. And then we have this uh, inheritance law where, you know, if uh, we are not doing anything illegal, then they have to give a portion to the woman also. So the thing is that, um, I mean that fragmenting bottom is, uh, is 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 an opportunity actually in terms of really targeting them. So we really need to customize it, you know, customize uh, to their needs. And in India, there are uh, very good examples. You know, for example, Avinash can uh, add to that the eChopal uh, initiative, where they kind of uh, you know opened uh, computer kiosks uh, to uh, talk about the relative price uh, market prices, and they offered I think around uh, five. Uh, five rupees per kg higher, and they ask the farmers to choose. So that, that's kind of small uh, innovations do happen where you really kind of, uh, you know, customize uh, uh, to the uh, uh, to that uh, segment. So I mean, population, even if it's that uh, fragmented bottom is really growing, but we need to really think of ways, how do you, you know, get lessons from private sector to see how do we really customize to that segment. Uh, number two is, um, sorry, uh, not related to population, but I wanted to react to uh, Avinar's uh, uh, policy where he talked about, uh, uh, you know, diversifying portfolio of the uh, small scale farmers. I just wanted to add in context of India, uh, poultry and fisheries uh, don't come under the category of agriculture. You know, and so that that's a big, big disadvantage because in terms of lending loan rates, uh, you know, so uh, so that's where, uh, you know, if you really want a very inclusive small scale farmers, you have to consider that they have to diversify into all these portfolios of poultry and fisheries, and you have to consider this as a, a yeah, priority okay. sector. Uh, okay, I'll stop at that, yeah. but there's... <laughs> so I... I... For the, the others in the panel, I mean, uh, do you have, Martin, do you have any thoughts about this or, or Avinash in terms of this idea that, that the burgeoning population could actually be a stimulus for growth? So, so we know the basic solo growth model that you can't have an economy growing unless the population is also growing, especially the working age population. Yes, it creates more demand for foods, et cetera. So uh, some decent, Japan's biggest headache is that its population is shrinking, right? Uh, so population growth, uh, healthy population growth is essential. One of the most underrated, when we do foresight, one of the most underrated crises of humanity under evaluated is uh, the grain populations, right? Uh, and uh, humanity has no experience. We have experience of climate change, not this kind of climate change, but some sort of, we have zero experience of a big chunk of our population becoming old. Uh, this, this is something we have not experienced. And we are, so young population um, is, is a good thing, provided we are facing this in South Asia too. More Bangladesh, India, Nepal, all of these countries are entering into what is called demographic dividend, where your working age population is growing faster than your dependent population. 
right? But this is a boon or this will give a stimulus only if you find jobs for them. Otherwise, it can become a headache too, which means and agriculture can absorb only so many people. So that requires labor intensive manufacturing and service industries where food can be a big contributor. So if you look at it, we are doing one of the projects that Jim advises on is if you look at, for example, India, last 10 years, the value addition in food processing and food merchandise merchandise is much faster and even job creation than it is in agriculture, smaller than on farm. But off farm value creation, off farm uh, employment generation is faster, four, five, four times faster in India compared to what is the value being generated on farm. So that has to give in uh, to that has to receive a stimulus, and there is a role for, uh, for 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 policy there. One last thing that I would say is that I didn't hear. I'm guessing Southeast Asia probably discussed it, but one thing that hasn't been discussed is trade. So when we talk about smallholders. We need to bring trade into the into the picture too. And when I say trade, I don't mean only international trade, which of course is more important, but also international trade and how that evolves and how that helps and hurts smallholders. Uh, we are not going to discuss it right now, uh, but it it has potential to increase income, but it also increases insecurities and risks, etc. But it's there. It has to be leveraged to make agriculture more resilient, to generate more income, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we shouldn't skip that topic. I think we often do. I think that's an important point, but probably one that we're not able to start things. We haven't covered it yeah. to date uh, at this point. Just flagging it, not asking for a discussion. Sure. Martin, I mean, all of this discussion is pointing to the fact that, that we need basically an off-farm uh, employment sector to grow rapidly in Africa. And we don't see that happening. So how can, how can that be turned around? I mean, to allow agriculture to grow, we need investment in other parts of the economy. That other economy yeah. needs to grow. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think what that, um, uh, that realization of the growth of population and the, um, the need to move away from um, uh, raw material to um, uh, added uh, uh, adding value has brought about this whole issue which I, I, I earlier referred to as just uh, a rural development. Basically, um, if I could talk about, for instance, the Southern African region, which is the 16 countries in Southern Africa, what they have done is they've now come up and agreed on what referring to as the SADC industrialization strategy. That strategy is based on a couple of uh, growth paths. And the first critical one was, is what they're referring to as the agro-processing growth path, uh, which takes into account the need for robust um, uh, robustness in, 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 in agro-processing or value addition, both in the urban areas but also to the production center. Linked to that is the whole aspect of regional value chains, which is being promoted um, quite heavily, um, especially between countries that uh, uh, that have synergies. So the whole issue of regional trade has become extremely important as a as as a means of providing a market for um, uh, the agro-processed um, commodities. Obviously, there are the issues like mineral beneficiation and service enhancement that are also coming up. I think the last point I just wanted to mention with regards to this is um, the and and, and in, in one of the colleagues talked about the issue of consolidation. 
this is becoming also very, very important. The support for consolidation, whether it be consolidation of products that's already there or consolidation of markets, that's becoming a very important element uh, in the Southern African region, at least in that context of uh, the industrialization development uh, strategy that's just been uh, uh, put out. Yeah. Thanks very much. I, I want to invite Jim back into the conversation. <clears throat> You've been sitting there uh, listening, but these are topics that obviously uh, touch on the core of your work as well, Jim. I mean, do you have any other reflections for us? And, and maybe I'd, I'd also invite Hater if, if you have any other any comments you'd like to make that reflecting back on the points we've been discussing here? And maybe particularly, maybe if we start with Hater and this off-farm, on-farm sector, and then we come to Jim. Do you think that that for the Latin American experience, do you feel, do you feel the, the same interdependence, if you like, of the growth in the urban or in, in the industrial sector, as well as in the farming sector and that interdependence? Or do you see that less in, in Latin America? <clears throat> well, um, yeah, I think of course things are connected, but yeah, I think th this link is, yeah, of course, is also complex. It's a complex link. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. But for sure, there are connections. That's, uh, I think, um, my view on this point. And, uh, and just because also in Latin America, the situation in terms of population and land size and so on is very different from the other yeah, continents. Very... And I just think, <laughs> I just want to make two short uh, observations. Like one, I think... Uh, yeah, we need to make sure that youth gets good access to rural education so then they can deliberately choose if they want to stay and farm or yeah. if they want to go to cities and work with other jobs. I think it's their decision and, and we should support them to have access to make this decision. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is agrarian reform because this is something we talk a lot about in, in Latin America and specifically in Brazil. And for instance, in the 70s, we had a president, João Goulart, and he made a very good speech and he proposed many different reforms. And one of them was agrarian reform. And after his speech, he was, uh, the people kicked him out and we had the dictatorship coming <laughs> because of course there are other powers that don't want uh, agrarian reform to take place. And indeed, a proper agrarian reform has not been done in Brazil uh, yet. And this is really, really important to assure that people that don't have land have access to land. And this is also now in our constitution. So we need to, to think about this, this, this land access issue and, and, and how to, 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 to not have huge latifundios, as we call, huge yeah, yeah. unproductive land that sometimes even is involved with slavery and so on. And we need yeah, to... Yeah, sure. Yeah. Jim, so... A question to you. Should we stop talking about small-scale farmers and talk about rural households? Would that help? Of which, for which farming is one activity? I can, I, I think, listening to what everybody's saying, I think that's actually probably a really good point. And um, you know, I think it's interesting if you start even making an access and say, you know, farm income on one access and non-farm income on the other. And I think, you know, we're, you, you then start to see a number of different groups of households. So you see those that are able to make most of their living from farming. You see those that have got a real mixed income and you see those that are largely got an off farm income, but are just still doing a little bit of farming. And I think we've got a very weak understanding 
of who's fitting into which group in which area and who has what different sorts of opportunities. And if we, if we talk about small scale farming with off farm income, then farm size doesn't matter. What matters is the return to labor. So do you get a good return to your labor from a small amount of land and then complement that with your off farm income? So again, I think this whole notion about understanding rural households rather than just small scale agriculture becomes really critical. And I think that feeds into the sort of broader discussion we've had over the last couple of days around you know, needing to fit small scale agriculture into a broader vision around food systems and to fit food systems into a broader perspective around you know, the environment, society and, and a whole range of other factors. And I think it was really interesting yesterday in the discussion from Latin America, where we often hear the discussion around smallholders being the problem rather than small scale farmers delivering a whole lot of services to society looking after the environment, providing good nutrition, providing income for a very large number of people. And I think if we turn it around in that way, you get a whole different sort of perspective of how we can be thinking around these opportunities. I mean, it's been interesting to me to sort of try and just pick up a few of the commonalities and differences across the regions. And you know, perhaps starting on the, on the positive side, I think this opportunity. So I think, Graeme, you mentioned that there's going to be a doubling of the sort of income in terms of higher value um, food products over the next decade or whatever it is. I think the, the figures for Africa are from 700 um, billion to 3 trillion or something over the next decade. So we're talking about really big scales of magnitude. And I imagine the similar sorts of issues happening in, in South Asia. So now, on one hand, we do across the different regions see these tremendous opportunities from a higher value in, in agriculture. Now, on the other hand, there are these also phenomenal differences. So, you know, just the population growth in, in South Asia, if I've got it right, is going to be sort of roughly an extra 700 million till 2050 and then tail off. Africa's population is going to double to 2 billion by 2050 and double again to 4 billion by the end of the century. So I mean, just trying to get your head around what that means for a whole range of these factors we're talking around for food production is, is super interesting. I think the other thing that's it's interesting is really understanding the different levels of productivity. So I think, you know, we, we heard that a lot of small scale farmers are getting pretty high productivity in East Asia. I think in South Asia, it's a, a mixed story. And then I think in Africa, you see a huge mix with a, a lot of low productivity. And I think, uh, Hater, it's also a fairly mixed story in, in, in Latin America. But some of the similarities, I think, um, that we've heard from across the regions, uh, you know, I mean, first, really needing to get our head around the sort of diversified nature of small-scale agriculture, the, the whole story around really trying to find creative ways to involve youth in agriculture has come across very strongly in each of the regional discussions alongside the critical role of really understanding gender issues and some of the feminization of agriculture and what that means for really making services and markets much more available to, to women in the sector. Um, and all of that sort of leading back to really needing to think about some deeper structural change. So I guess my, my last point around all of this is, you know, what I'm hearing people moving towards is how do we think about much more of a, a transition strategy in small scale agriculture. So I think everybody's saying it's clear that you now in the long term, very large numbers of very small, very impoverished farmers is not what anybody's looking for. But what's the transition? 
what numbers are going to be able to come more commercial? What numbers are going to be able to link a small on-farm operation with off-farm income? What numbers are going to have to find a completely different sort of livelihood? And how do you manage that? And I think that comes back to sort of three big strategies that we need to be thinking about running in parallel. So the first one is the, the whole commercialization story we've been talking about. The second one is how do we get a much more effective social protection mechanism to, to cover risk, to cover those that really aren't making it? And I think the third one, and we had a really interesting discussion around this from Sri Lanka, is where are we missing out on the opportunities for you know, household food production that can really improve nutrition and, and complement um, off-farm income? And you know, have we really missed a big story? I mean, we might have referred to it as a semi-subsistence, but I think we need a different language for this in some way about how can we help people to produce food in a way that helps their nutritional status on farm, in their backyards, in, in, in their gardens, and how do we get those three strategies reinforcing and, and working together? Well, Jim, I think you've, you've just used up our last five minutes, more or less. Oh, we had an hour and a half for this one, Ken. We had an hour and a half, in yeah. each case. <laughs> I, I, I think we should be thinking about final comments anyway. I mean, I think we've had a, 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 a really good discussion. Um, there are quite a number of comments coming in in, in the chat, and uh, which I think are, is, is also very useful. Uh, I'd like to go around the table, if you like, invite if there are any closing thoughts from each of our panelists, and then we'll move towards a closure and talk about the, the follow-up actually uh, to this uh, set of different uh, discussions that we've had. Graham, would you like to leave us with a parting thought? Or I, I know it's late, it's late in the evening where you are. Okay, I mean, I'll just say so that one of the things about agricultural transformation is that actually primary agricultural GDP per stomach hardly changes. It's always seemed to be about 650, whether it's Burkina Faso or um, the United States. What we've noticed is as they go through this agricultural transformation, the proportion of GDP that's generated off the farm goes up. So for every, so in a basic agricultural economy in which we, you know, Cambodia, Myanmar would be examples in our area, for every dollar you generate of additional value on the farm, you generate about 25 cents off it. And as countries go for this transformation and the rest of the economy grows, the, 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 the proportion of, of, of value added that happens in the supply chain goes up. So, you know, in, a, in, a, in, in where Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia is now, they will be generating 75 cents for every dollar that's generated on the farm. So that's just a kind of, you know, this is what's actually happening. This is where the opportunities are. They're much more likely to be off the farm. If you look at a developed economy, um, you know, like France, you might get two or three percent of the population farming, but maybe 30 percent of jobs are in the supply chain. And, and there comes a critical point when the income of people starts going up that they seem to want more food services, uh, more prepared foods, and those, those opportunities happens in the food system. So I'm just putting those in there that you will find countries as they move down that chain, there will be more jobs in the food supply chain, there will be more va value added, um, uh, uh, but it does depend on the growth of the larger economy, over. Thanks, uh, Graham. So Mamata and then Avinash from South Asia. 
Yeah, uh, I think we had a very useful discussion and what I wanted to um, really emphasize on three points is that, uh, you know, there's one thing we can filter out uh, uh, and uh, is that we have to be wary of the last mile uh, issue problem in, uh, when we talk about small scale farmers. I think that's 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 the foremost and that's the uh, very stumbling block for um, any uh, kind of advancement for small scale farmers. Uh, the number two is that uh, when we are talking about securing uh, the future of this small scale farms, you have to really think of big changes, you know, big changes in the terms of uh, you need to have the back end uh, right, you have to organize the small scale farmers in a way where incentives are well aligned. And when I talk about uh, uh, securing uh, the small scale farmers uh, future, um, I, we should always emphasize augmenting their, uh, you know, non farm uh, activities, because only when you do that, when you uh, kind of make the small scale farmers really viable for future, uh, you need to strengthen their non farm activities and only then they can produce what is, you know, optimal uh, for them, then they can access market, they can mitigate risks and uh, they provide them with liquidity in so we have to, in order to really get them enabled, you know, to going forward, uh, you really need to augment them with non-farm uh, activities. So, and besides the other two, where I always emphasize, and I did it last yesterday also, that you have to get the markets right, you know, and yeah. if, if you really want the small scale farmers to uh, go ahead. Thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. So, so I will just summarize from what we discussed yesterday and uh, kind of emphasized earlier here too. One is that institutions uh, are very important and this includes uh, public institutions, public systems and private institutions like markets, et cetera. And governments have a huge role to play. So the, that government should completely withdraw and existing institutions should completely go away is a wrong view if anyone is taking it a, even now. So governments have a big role to play and institutions are, uh, are important. Second is, that agriculture and smallholder agriculture in particular will continue to require subsidization by the rest of the economy for the simple fact that its share in GDP is much smaller than its share in employment. And even the richest countries of the world subsidize their agriculture. So subsidies are not bad, but they do, do need rationalization. They're designed badly and wherever technology and institutional setup supports, let's use subsidies so that they incentivize the right thing and disincentivize the wrong thing. So free electricity is bad, but giving a cash transfer to farmers is not bad. Third is, just the last thing is that, let's remember that what has locally evolved, there is a lot of heterogeneity, we discussed a lot about it. And as a result, there isn't one type solution that will fit everywhere. And a lot of local arrangements have emerged already. Let's not completely brush them aside and ignore them. Small is not bad, not necessarily bad. Informal is not necessarily bad and complex is not necessarily bad. What researchers and policy, which is not legible to researchers and policymakers, what they don't understand is not necessarily bad. It has evolved in response to the complex situation that is there. And when we are changing, when we are bringing in new technology, et cetera, it will really be useful to understand, value, and appreciate the local institutions, despite all this blaming and of middlemen and other things that we do. I think let's appreciate the value they contribute and try to reinforce them instead of completely erasing them and trying to plant whatever our favored mode of institutions or type of institutions. Thank you. That sounds like very, very wise words of warning there uh, in terms of interference. Heitor, a last comment from you. Yeah, well, thank you all for the very interesting discussion and insights. 
And I just want to, to highlight also what Jean said, that I think smallholder family farmers, they can be seen as part of the solution. And that's, that's a, quite a change in the way you see things. And I think that's quite important. And also um, the importance of local organizations, because things are not going to happen from top down. Things are going to happen if farmers get organized, get together with different organizations, cooperatives, unions, with researchers and technicians, and then find collective solutions. And so that is really, really important, connecting people, connecting things. And in Latin America, um, the agroecological movement, practice, and science has been really important to put farmers together and to really build their own paradigm in agriculture because the paradigm of smallholder farmers and family farmers is quite different from the large agribusiness uh, paradigm and how do we acknowledge that and how do we make sure that they have their rights and the opportunity to grow and to go out of the poverty trap and and really thrive and and yeah sure so yeah that was my final thoughts thank you very much yeah thanks Ata. martin you're dealing with this complex continent of Africa for us. Yes, very much so. Um, I agree with um, colleagues and thank you very much. I mean, for those insights, I mean, I, I really enjoyed uh, uh, these discussions. Um, let me just part on one area that, uh, that was raised. I think it was uh, Graham who mentioned this whole issue about mobile money uh, and the use of technology. Um, uh, and, and I'm putting this in the context of the growing youth population um, and, and, and how um, uh, unhealthy the situation is where agriculture is, is, is not quite part of their, um, their mainstay. But just to say that with the use of mobile money, the use of technology for price uh, discovery uh, processes and um, the point that uh, Avinash has mentioned of the middlemen, I think is so critical because this allows for the young population to find space in um, transforming agriculture into better than what it is at the moment. So that's, that's just the point I wanted to raise. It's a very critical uh, area. Thank you. Majvita, Tatenda. Tatenda as well. Okay, so <clears throat> at this point, Jim, I'm going to hand over to you to, uh, to wind up. And, but really, uh, thanks so much for all our panelists here today. You know, I'm, I'm really learning so much myself from this discussion. And, you know, all of those on the chat, we've got opportunities for you to make your little vlogs and add them to our website. Uh, we'd love to hear more from everybody and keep this as inclusive as possible. Over to you, Jim. Thank you, Ken, and thanks for that uh, fabulous uh, moderation. You really drew out some fabulous uh, insights and stories from uh, and added to the richness of the discussions from the last uh, three days. And then, of course, thank you so much to the panellists now, but also to the panellists that joined us in each of the regional sessions, and also a big thank you to those uh, online that have joined us. We, uh, we realise that people are probably getting a little bit Zoomed out these days. We've all discovered how, much, how easily we can connect on Zoom and somehow expect people to be available for Zoom calls at a shorter notice than we're organising a face-to-face -face meeting. But I think it's, been a, it's really been a great collection of minds and, and, and thinking. And to, to ensure the real value from this, we're going to make sure that these sessions are summarised well and we'll turn these um, recordings into, into good uh, 
audio podcasts so that hopefully a much wider audience can pick them up and, and listen to them. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will really, really value that. Uh, just to remind everybody that we will have another session that we'll be looking at some of the strategies for uh, taking this agenda forward on the 10th of November. And we will then have a wrap up session at the end of November 24th, I think, if I got that right, Ken? 25th. 25th, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, again, that will all be on online. We'll uh, email back to everybody that's registered, the 500 plus people that registered for the e-dialogue to keep them informed of what we've done over the last, last couple of days. So again, very big thank you to everybody. I've found it a totally fascinating uh, two days of, of discussions and, and really got the brain cells going. So thank you all very much and uh, good luck.